0: Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. For the second time, I have Susan Dopart on the podcast. Susan, would you like to introduce yourself again to the listeners?
1: Of course. Thanks, Ross, for having me. I greatly appreciate it. I'm Susan Dopart. I'm a uh, dietitian uh, based in now Los Angeles, but moving to Boise. And uh, I have been a motivational interviewing trainer for about 15 years so I have this duality to my job where I have a practice and I'm a trainer I'm also an exercise physiologist and a diabetes educator as well
0: wow you've got the inter- intersection of many different specialties which is amazing so of, of those specialties what would you say you specialize in What what's the main work you do
1: I call myself a medical dietitian, where I see people with more complex medical issues. And more recently, it seems like there's a lot of gut challenges or we call gut dysbiosis where uh, people are having um, overgrowth of bacteria. cybo, uh, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth is a big one. And so I recently started having people tested uh, for bacteria mold toxins things I never dreamed about in the past and I'm able to really tailor people's therapy to what's going on in their gut because the gut is uh, where you know 90% of your immunity is and uh, 90% of your serotonin and dopamine so if someone's not feeling well there could there could be issues within the gut which are the whys of uh, or drivers of what's going on medically. And unfortunately, I think that is not being addressed in the Western world. So that has given me a huge um, insight into how to help people in my practice, whether they have diabetes or gut challenges or uh, heart disease or beginning stages of Alzheimer's or cancer, um, things that are typically treated with drugs and uh helping people in a different way.
0: Yeah. And that's what it's all about, helping people. So you mentioned on the last episode that, you know, your ideal client is someone who you can help a lot, who has, you know, a lot of work to do. Would you still stand by that? Is that, you know, kind of how you view your work and helping clients? And if not, what is your ideal client to work with?
1: Well, people are puzzles, right? And a lot of times I call myself the end of the line. I don't know if I said that before, but, uh, They've tried lots of other practitioners and have hit walls. And so they're coming to me saying, my weight doesn't budge. I have chronic gut issues. I can't get my blood sugars down. Where do I go? Where do I start? And looking at um so many different things, looking at their blood work, looking at this testing that I'm doing with a company called Mosaic, uh, looking at the balance of what they're eating, the timing. And trying to put that together in an intentional, thoughtful way so we can unwind the layers of their health. So that's kind of an ideal client. And I don't know if there is an ideal client because everyone's different, but people that come that are in a quandary and usually they're in a lot of pain about they've tried their best to help themselves and it hasn't led to good things so now they're looking for another way.
0: Yeah, we all need help. And it's great to have someone as experienced as you who can help clients. So you've got a, a range of specialties, you know, a lot of intersection of different areas. What's, what's your personal motivation for, for helping clients and having such a kind of a broad range of skills to help your clients?
1: I think it has to do with being curious about what really helps people. Uh, in college, you know, it's a long story, which I don't want to get into, but I became a nutritionist based on some of my own health challenges. And I think a lot of my own health challenges over the course of years, the years led me to thinking about, oh, this needs to be addressed or this needs to be addressed. And how do I gather information and educate myself and go to enough conferences of wide variety so that I can pull from that in my brain and do it in a collaborative partnership way with clients. Because a lot of times people go to practitioners and they get lots of blanket or I'm the doctor advice. And I try to do things in a motivational interviewing way. So then I'm partnering with the person because they are the experts in themselves. I may be the expert in specific medical or functional medicine specialties, but how do we combine both those expertises so they get to the place they want to go?
0: Very good. So speaking of motivational interviewing, that's that's how we met in one of your, your live trainings. So just can you explain a little bit about, and I'll actually also say that the motivational interviewing training sessions that you run, invaluable for my coaching with my clients. I really, really enjoyed it. It really helped kind of bridge the gap between being a trainer and getting to know my clients and and help them. So what what is motivational interviewing for anyone who has not heard of it? And, you know, if they were to learn more about it, as I have, what are some of the things they could notice in work with clients or in other areas of their work?
1: Well, I got interested in motivational interviewing many, many years ago when the first motivational interviewing book came out. We called MI1. Now MI4, the fourth edition is about to come out because I realized early on that no one wants to be told what to do, especially no one wants to be told what to eat because food is so intimate. So I realized, hmm, how do I really help people in a way? I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know what that would be like, but a therapist in one of my first offices, when I was brand new in private practice, handed me the first book on motivational interviewing, said, Susan, you should read this book. It might help you with your clients. And I read the book, but am I, because it's a language, you can't just read a book and know the language. So I it, that led me down a path of really learning this language and then becoming a trainer in this language. And it's basically a partnership collaborative language to evoke someone's own motivation for change and activate the part of their brain that knows they can be successful. So like you wouldn't say to someone you need to exercise because they're going to tell you all the reasons why they can't exercise. And I always joke that advice is the junk mill of life, right? Nobody wants to be told what to do. Instead, you would say, well, when you've made this change in the past, what helped you? They have to think about it, say it out loud, which activates the part of their brain when they've been successful. And then if you do the skill of reflection, that's one of the skills of motivational interviewing, you say that back to them what you heard with meaning. It, it's like a double reflection to the brain which is so much more impactful than any piece of advice you could give them. So motivational interviewing is a very intentional way of not only being with people, but how you um, help navigate the conversation. So we're not directing the conversation, but we're directive. So when you've exercised in the past, what helped you? That's a directive question. or when you've exercised, you felt really good in your body. That's a directive reflection, or excuse me, directional reflection. A directional affirmation would be, so you're really intentional about exercising on a daily basis. That's really important to you. That's a directional affirmation.
0: I love that quote. Advice is a junk man of life. That's, I'm going to have to use that one again. Mm-hmm. So let's say somebody thinks they need to be told what to do. That's what they, they feel like. I need to be told what to do. And before I forget, I want to ask a question about brain imaging scanning, if there's anything done with MI. But that's later on. So if somebody has it in their mind, they I need direction. I need to be told what to do. I need to be even held accountable. It kind of it feels like that's not in the spirit of MI. You know, how would you work with a client who they feel like they need to be told exactly what to do? Sort of like they're looking for like a drill sergeant of a health professional.
1: I might ask them, well, when someone's told you what to do in the past, how helpful was that to you? You know, and they might say, well, I don't know how well it went. Uh But there's a skill of MI, we used to call it EPE, elicit, provide elicit, and they just changed it. Now it's called ask, offer, ask. So it's a, um, Stephen Rollnick, one of the authors of MI says there's a difference between what used to be called the fix, the writing reflex. Now it's called the fixing reflex. There's a difference between that and what he calls skillful advice giving. So this is skillful advice giving, It'd be like. Okay, well, you're really intent on learning to exercise or change a specific habit. Um, what would you, what do you already know about that? Or what would you like to know about that? So you're eliciting from someone what they already know, so you don't duplicate information. And then whatever they say they'd like to know about, that's the provide part. Okay, we could talk about X, Y, Z, A, B, C. Which part of this would be the most helpful to you they get to pick which gives them control and choice and autonomy through the process so you provide that information and then the it's ask offer ask and then you ask again what did um what parts of this are the most helpful to you where does this information leave you what would you like to do moving forward so all throughout the conversation you're giving autonomy you're giving control and choice
0: so why is autonomy and control and choice so important C- can't we just be you know directed by the expert and just follow the lead of someone with you know who's, who's got a kind of like mastery or ten thousand hours experience
1: right, right because of something called um psychological reactions that It's human nature if you tell someone what to do, they're just going to take the opposite approach and tell you why it doesn't work for them. And the problem with that is when they say out loud why it doesn't work for them, that actually makes them more resistant to change because they've announced in their own voice, which reinforces to their brain why they're not going to do it. So they're moving away from change rather than towards change.
0: So that's the point on the, the brain imaging I wanted to bring up. So since we spoke last time, I don't think you mentioned the brain as much. Do you know of any studies where there's a an MI practitioner and a client and they're, or maybe even just a client, and they're hooked up to MRI imaging to see, to, to a brain scan to see the effect on the brain of what MI is, you know, being done in the spirit of MI or when the client's autonomy is being affected.
1: I don't know any specific studies about being attached to brain imaging, but I do know that there are a few people in the motivational interviewing world. One is uh, Richard Rushkin. He's the, the brain guy. And he says that when you use the skill of reflections, there's it, forms a bridge in the corpus callosum of the brain that people are actually able to use both sides of their brain because they hear them talk on one side of their brain, you reflect it. They hear it on the other side of their brain. And I can actually give you a link to that.
0: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. That would be very interesting to read about. So something I'm reading about recently and, and just thinking about in my own life is symbolism. So for example, You know, I recently joined a separate gym to where I work because symbolically it's like the separate gym is where I train. Work is where I work, right? Mm. That's, I think it's going to, I'm hoping to my brain, it kind of signals, Hey, this area that this environment is work. This other environment is, you know, training or for myself. Do you think there's an element of that going on with motivational interviewing where someone, there's a bit of symbolism going on where it's kind of giving signals to the brain where it's like, you know, okay, I, um, exercising my autonomy or I'm exercising, you know, exercising my autonomy toward autonomy towards change or towards remaining the same.
1: Absolutely. Because when you give autonomy, then the person has to go inside and think about what is it that I want? So here's an example. I might be talking to a client about a certain way of eating and they might say something like, well, I don't think I can do that. I'm not sure if I can cut out as much processed foods as you're talking about. And that is a perfect opportunity to emphasize autonomy. I'll say, well, you know it Only you can decide what's going to work for you. You're the driver of your health. And I just stop there. Sometimes about five minutes later, it's usually about five minutes later, they come back and say, yeah, I probably do need to make this change. You know, my blood sugars aren't going in the right direction. You know, my health isn't going in the right direction. So if we can talk about that more, it almost always happens. So emphasizing autonomy is one of the key predictors of behavior change. The number one predictor of behavior change is um accurate empathy, where you're saying to someone what they said back to you with meaning and empathy, right? That's the number one predictor. And we think that the number two is is autonomy.
0: Interesting. So just something I've heard is in the mental health space is that depression is learned helplessness, that, mm. that people can't help themselves. So do you know how effective MI is for promoting people with autonomy and, and treating depression? Because it feels like if you're pro- promoting autonomy, you're promoting a person's ability to help themselves and maybe even help themselves out of a depressive state.
1: Mm-hmm. So there's um, a lot of wonderful things you can do with MI with those scenarios. We're always holding our eye on the horizon for change and reflecting hope and change underneath someone's words, okay? So there's three types of talk in MI. There's discord, where someone feels judged and they might say something like, well, you don't understand me. If that happens, you have to repair uh, what we call the working alliance, right? Without a working alliance, people don't change. We may be well-meaning people, but if we keep telling people what to do, we usually rupture the working alliance and people don't want to come back. The second type of talk is called sustained talk, which is just, Ross, I don't think I can do that. I don't think that's going to work for me. That's normal. You're going to hear sustained talk or struggle. The last type of talk is called change talk. That's where people go in the the direction towards change. Well, you know, I might be able to take a walk three times a week. I think I could work on, you know, changing my diet a bit. And so... What you reflect or say back to someone determines what they say next. And we call this the recency effect. So do you want your client to talk about struggles um, or change? And I say, I got this from my comedian trainer, motivational training. Do you want to hang out in pain town or change town? And what's interesting is I train now a lot of people who want to train motivational interviewing. And we call it train the trainer. And in people's attempt to be empathetic, they keep reflecting struggle. And they wonder why their conversation never goes towards change. And so teaching them how to reframe those statements towards change. So on the one hand, you're feeling really blue. And on the other hand, you came here today because you're trying to work yourself, work through that. And you're wondering what's going to help you. I'm teasing the brain towards hope versus you came here because you're really depressed. What's the next thing they're going to say? Mm -hmm. So your client's going to talk about the last thing you said. So carefully choosing your words so that they reflect hope and change versus just struggle.
0: So it's almost like you're getting someone out of the black and white thinking that they're in, you know? when when it's kind of the black and white thinking is like they're stuck in a rut. You're kind of like you could be stuck in a rut, but there's also there's a little bit of hope there. Because you're here today, for example, talking to to me. Yeah. And
1: I got this piece really well a few years ago when one of my clients who had been pretty pretty blue was leaving my office and she turned around and said to me, I always feel more hope when I come here. Thank you. Wow. And that was such a gift that she gave to me. And that's the gift of motivational interviewing. How do you leave someone with a little more hope than when they entered your presence?
0: That's powerful work. That that's very uplifting. I think that's you know, as a health professional myself, working with clients, that's something I would love to experience more of. And which leads me to my next question. So you had a Portion on your website that said, "Do you ever feel like you're experiencing the same conversation with your client each time you see them?" So you know you, we can get into a routine uh, with clients and we can you know maybe have the same conversations. How's the weather, for example? So how, how does MI address this, and, and what would the change be once someone learns that MI in the conversations they have with their clients?
1: It's a matter of really using the skills and being what we say more proficient in the skills. So if someone walks in the office and they start confessing, people do that with dietitians. I didn't do this and I didn't do this and I didn't do this. And uh, we say something like, well, let's park that for a while. You know, we never really get into it. And I'll make an affirmation. So despite the challenges you had this week, you showed up, that's an affirmation, I'm affirming something genuine and specific. You showed up because you want those things to be different moving forward. So I'm affirming what they're doing, not talking about what they're not doing. And so that's pulling the brain towards change and hope. And they might say something like, you're right, I showed up, I was going to cancel because I hadn't done any of this. And I realized, what's that going to do if I cancel? I'm just going to be in a deeper hole. And so if we keep asking people just chatty questions like, hi, how how are you? What's going on? Then we're going to probably have those same conversations. So we say with MI, one of the slogans is getting real, real fast. So when someone walks in, I say, okay, so how did it go since last time? What worked? Right? What do we, you feel like we need to work on today? So I'm, I'm engaging someone. I'm finding their focus. Those are the two, there's four processes. They're not going to call them tasks in MI, engaging, focusing, evoking, planning. And a lot of times helping practitioners want to get to planning too quickly. You have to engage someone. Really empty your mind completely of yourself. And I call it being on. This is the most important conversation of my life. How do I really give thought to all this person in front of me is bringing? They came to see me. They want the... They want the help. They want to leave with more hope. They want to feel better. And so giving presence to that and finding the focus of why they showed up that day and then tailoring the conversation to that.
0: You can see, I can see already where there's like a lot of skill to, it's like an art this conversation of uh, the MI style. So let's just assume you've kind of started the open-ended questions and then the, the next part is, you know, trying to navigate towards change. What type of questions would you start to ask? Or maybe even just kind of from the start with the open-ended questions and then going towards change, what would that look like in a conversation with the client for a trainer, dietitian, whatever profession?
1: That's where the evoking component of MI comes in, where if someone says, well, you know, I just couldn't do this or this week. And I'll say, well, when you were more on track with your food this week or even last week, what helped? That's where they're act- we're activating that part of their brain where they've been successful. And I might hear something like, well, you know, I did eat breakfast every day. I was thoughtful about having enough protein. Um, I thought about not snacking too much. And then you see a smile come across their face. And then they'll say something like, hmm, maybe I was had more success than I thought I did. And then we build on that conversation versus what they didn't do. If someone is very stuck, I might ask a question like, well, what do you think got in the way of you staying on track this week? They have to think about what got in the way. They say it out loud, I reflect towards change. So if someone said, well, I didn't get enough sleep, and I might say something like, so sleep is really foundational for you. That's a directional reflection towards change. And then they'll talk about, yeah, when I get more sleep, I feel better. I get up, I exercise, I eat healthier. And then reflecting that. So sleep is really critical for you. That's your foundation for how you operate. What would it look like to get enough sleep every night? Or you could ask a question like, you know, what would be the three top benefits of getting sleep for you?
0: It makes me think that using MI, you're almost like a detective or an investigator and Mm -hmm. you don't know, you know, the solution, but you're like, you're very curious and you're just trying to pull out kind of, the hope or, you know, the clues towards the change they want to make. Is that a fair way to describe MI?
1: How beautiful. You're curious about how and why someone might change.
0: So then the the, the next question I have is, if someone has a little bit of uh, resistance um, and, you know, they don't want to maintain the status quo, how do you how do you kind of, or they're trying to maintain the status quo, they don't want to change, but the client is still coming to you to improve some area of their health. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: In that situation, how do you use the skills of MI?
1: Well, we think of, we don't use the word resistance anymore. We call it dancing with discord. And we also think of when people are having a hard change, it's usually due to procrastination. Wanting and not wanting the change or wanting incompatible things at the same time. So it's really helping work through that ambivalence and that procrastination with the the skill of directional reflections, directional questions, a lot of evoking questions. And there is no formula for MI, but you're interweaving all the skills so that When someone leaves your presence, they're thinking about all those things that you reflected to them because you might not get buy-in in that moment, but that conversation will unwind in someone's brain for hours, days, even years. I've had people come back three years later and say, you said this very important thing to me and I wasn't ready to deal with it. Then, but I'm ready to deal with it now.
0: Wow. So you, you mentioned procrastination. You know, what is kind of going on for the client when they are procrastinating on a change they want to make? And then what would be an example of what MI would do to address that?
1: Hmm. Well, it could be any behavior change, you know, sleep, exercise, changing their diet. Right? doing yoga or meditation and and really not only pulling for past success but asking evoking questions about what would it look like for them to do that or even make the first step right uh when you've done that in the past what helped and whatever they say cuz you never know what's going to come up you add meaning towards change and if you want, you could throw out some ambivalent statements you hear, and I will demonstrate.:
0: Ambivalent statements myself, or that I think of or, what or you that you mind. hear from or that you hear from clients. Nothing comes to mind for a client, but for myself, I'm just thinking of, you know, I want to improve my sleep, but it's difficult.
1: Hmm. So you're really thinking about getting more sleep. And you're wondering what the the right steps are for you.
0: Exactly. Yeah, sleep is very important. I I've realized sleep is the foundation of health. It comes before everything else, in my opinion, or for me at least. So.
1: Yeah. And you're realizing, because you're a busy guy, that if you don't get enough sleep, it's going to impact all this good that you're doing in the world
0: let's not get carried away here. I, I don't know. Everybody, Everybody's busy. I'm not doing a whole lot of good. I think a lot of people are doing good. But I think it limits me, in, in, in my own words, it limits me to be my most effective. If I'm not getting my at least seven hours straight away, you know, if it's anything less than seven hours, my effectiveness is instantly limited.
1: Yeah. And you want to be on your game and effect, as effective as you can be.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I know if I get enough sleep, then I'm I it's like I'm putting myself in a position for success.
1: And that's really important to you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy my work more and no. helping people and being able to uh to be present and and kind of show up, I think. That's that's what the kind of success is. It's just I guess being able to be there for other people.
1: So it leads to a lot of success in many areas
0: for you. Absolutely. So for example, on on whatever given day it is that i get a good night's sleep whatever i've decided to do i can really have the best chance of being successful in that you know because life is full of so many different challenges and things come up and it's it's so like demanding and it requires you know people to be flexible i can kind of bend more to the you know demands of life or not, not even bend but like sort of meet them far more easily than when i'm sleep deprived which is like you know, I'm working at a, a complete deficit and straight away I'm limited. And it's, yeah. it's so frustrating to know you're limited when, oh, if I just had slept more, I would be able to do a little bit more or, or be more.
1: So sleep helps Ross be more resilient. Great way to put it. We did a great little role play there. Real play.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was a real example. Like, I think I'm less resilient. That's a great word. I'm less resilient. I'll get sick faster. I'll get burned out faster if I don't sleep enough. And I think that's true for many people. So, yeah, that was that was really useful.
1: Mm. So So it all came from you and evoking in you why sleep is important and then reflecting towards change why it's important for you.
0: I feel like I did the the bulk of the work there, but I think the fact that you have the skill set that you have, which is so advanced instead of the typical, well, have you tried this or did you, you know, there was no break in the conversation, you know, it was very much. I think I might've heard this somewhere else before. It's kind of like I'm the the captain of the ship and you're like the co captain, you're sort of like any ideas I have instead of just going off of them on my own, you're sort of just like echoing them back to me to see what my brain really thinks of them as opposed to being stuck inside my head.
1: Right, right. Because it's 100% about you, 0% about me. MI is a very selfless language.
0: It, it is. And also it's, it, it requ- it's a two-way kind of street in a way where the practitioner, the, the MI practitioner really evokes out what's already there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So even though it is a hundred percent about the client, were it not for the skills of MI, you know it, it there would be far less evoked, far less change would happen for sure. As evidenced by the yeah. the real play.
1: And when you're learning motivational interviewing, it's completely emptying your mind of anything you're thinking about because you are a hundred percent focused on the client and their words. And where they want to go, and if you're thinking about something else, you're going to miss it.
0: It requires, yeah, the full attention and focus. Which that's kind of I think there's some quote I've heard before where it's like that the the greatest gift you can give someone is like your full attention.
1: Yeah, the purity of your attention.
0: So another question I had was, how can I avoid You know, traps that well-meaning practitioners fall into. And these are things that like, you know, you could see the potential in a client or you could sense the change that the client wants to make. You know, they come to you and they're like, I'm getting married. I really want to make this change. Or, you know, I have this big life goal coming up, or I'm at a certain age now where I really want to, you know, I've been thinking about it for decades. I want to make this change to my health. So that, so that the, the practitioner can feel that. How do they avoid? Right. The common traps with MI.
1: Well, Stephen Rolnick has a famous quote. He's one of the authors of MI slow down, your progress will be better. So, when we spend that even five minutes really engaging, finding the focus, evoking someone's past success or motivation, then we can tailor the conversation more towards what they need. But many times what you're describing is people jump in with a solution, the fixing reflex and they 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 don't really understand the full extent of what someone's asking for, so they and they don't know the skill of reflection, so they get into the question answer trap or the premature focus trap. I mean there's all these traps in mi, and if you truly want to help someone, you have to think about doing it in a different way so that someone truly leaves thinking about change versus I'm not going to do that. That's not going to work for me. You made them more resistant to change. And that is the problem with that type of directive advice. Someone can leave you more resistant to change.
0: It's almost like a health practitioner's worst nightmare. The client comes to you looking for help and for change, and then they've almost been worse off in a way. So that would be one to avoid. So something that comes to mind for me is some clients are not particularly talkative or the the conversation isn't particularly free flowing, which is that it's completely up to the client if they want to talk or not, you know? So when trying to evoke change in a client, I feel like we've kind of discussed it already, but is it very much up to the client's own? choosing the the conversation, how it goes, like whether they want to talk or not, you know, um, how do you, how do you work with a situation where a client is not particularly chatty, we'll say forthcoming with.
1: Right. right. That's actually a very common question. And that's a common thing with especially teenagers, you know, and uh, a teenager might come because their parents want them to be there, whether it's lifestyle or their cholesterol is high, or they need to lose weight. And they'll just like, fold their arms and say, I don't want to be here. My mother made me come. And rather than uh, getting into anything, you have to really work hard at engaging. So you you were made to come here and you're not even sure if this is going to be helpful to you because that's what they're thinking, right? And so if you reflect that back, all of a sudden they're like, oh, okay. Like a young man, 16 years old, couple of weeks ago said to me, well, they just told me to get on Zoom with you. And I didn't even know this was going to happen. And he had seen me before. And this was a follow-up. And I said, I'll call him Robert. I said, Robert, you, you don't have to be here. We can just end the conversation right now. And that'll be it. I'll, you only want to be here if this is helpful to you. Now, what I did is I emphasized autonomy. I gave the 16-year-old his autonomy And he kind of looked at me and he's like, no, I want to be here. Wow. And I actually did that one time a few years ago where, you know, I always ask for cancellation where a mom and a daughter were in the waiting room and the daughter didn't want to be there and she was crying and it was pretty, uh, pretty, her behavior was pretty demonstrative. And I looked at her and I looked at the mom and I said, you know what? You both can leave. It's okay. I won't charge you for the appointment because I don't want to get into a power struggle with anyone, even especially a child or a teenager. And I went back in my office and a few minutes later, she walked in with her mom. She goes, no, I'll stay. So giving kids autonomy is very powerful.
0: Wow. Yeah. It's like, it doesn't matter what age you are. No one likes to be told what to do. Like you said earlier,
1: this, this young girl that I've been seeing for a few years, she's now 17, but she came when she was 15 and she has a common hormonal disorder called PCOS and it makes weight challenges and hormonal challenges. Um, there's a lot of that going on and she cried, she sobbed through the whole first consult and I thought, I'm never going to see her again. And the le- the next, it's interesting, I just gave a lot of autonomy. The next time she showed up, she's like, you know, I realized I can do this. I realized this is gonna help me. And I just saw her on Tuesday, today's Thursday, I saw her Tuesday, and she's lost over 50 pounds in two years. And she comes, drives herself, she's now 17. She takes responsibility herself. And we were joking at, on Tuesday about that first session
0: but the the power of mi that when things go really well that's
1: mm-hmm. what
0: can happen that's a change that can be evoked
1: yeah so reflecting back to someone who's not very verbal what you think they're thinking can help them talk but also the wonderful thing is if you're wrong they'll want to correct you which makes them want to talk so guessing a lot of people are uncomfortable this but guessing is okay when you're reflecting back to someone because if you're right they'll just say yeah and they'll talk but if you're wrong which is sometimes even better you'll get more information
0: so so that comes back to really being open with the the open-ended questions or is it more like trying to use an accurate question based on you know what you see in the person
1: it's more about the skill of reflections and guessing what someone is thinking or feeling, and then saying that back to them. And if you have the spirit of MI, of compassion, acceptance, partnership, evocation, that the foundation of MI, it's okay to guess because if you're wrong, they'll sense that spirit and they'll correct you. If you don't have that spirit, then you can't guess.
0: Got it. So what are some examples of questions that would be examples of the spirit of MI, where maybe it's a client where the conversation is not particularly free-flowing, or even like the example you gave of the, the people who didn't want to necessarily be there, You know, what would be an example of those questions with the spirit of MI embodied in them?
1: You know, this was really difficult for you to come today, and yet you showed up. So I'm wondering, what would be most helpful today to you? What would you like to leave with? What would be most impactful? And then you stay completely silent. You let them talk. Whatever they say, you just reflect that back to them. And then you've created the working alliance. Someone knows that you heard them. They know that you know where they want to go. And then you tailor whatever you're doing in response to that.
0: Got it. So it's, it's with the view to building the working alliance and, and thinking of that. As opposed to maybe having some agenda yourself.
1: Yes, you can't. In MI, we don't have an agenda and that is very hard for some people. But if we have an agenda and we're forcing an agenda, it's human nature. They're going to go the opposite direction. So we stay neutral. And this is a key. I'm glad you asked that. When we're neutral, with neutrality, the decision is towards change. Right. If someone says to you, well, Ross, you know, you're the professional. What should I do? That is a beautiful way to emphasize autonomy and say, you know, you're a different person than me. So we have to figure out what works for you and what's going to be the best approach for you. Emphasizing for you.
0: Well, it's, it really is a good example of slow down to make progress, like you said, because if you were to be a bit too sort of trigger happy and to give advice, that could sever the trust and sort of cause an issue.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: Susan, this has been brilliant. I think I've taken up enough of your time. Is there any kind of final message you want to leave people with or any links you want to refer to?
1: MI is simple when you hear it, but it's not easy. It's not an easy language to learn. But if you are in a situation where, like you said, you're having the same conversation, you're in a power struggle with people, this is a beautiful way to really create change in your clients. And also at the end of the day, knowing that you made a difference in the world.
0: Yeah, which is what I think a lot of health professionals like to do. For Susan, thank you very much. And uh, it's been great speaking with
1: you. Okay, you too. Thanks.